ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park. As you see, it is a beautiful park, green and leafy. When you come here, you see how beautiful Hiroshima is. But where you are walking now, actually, is graveyard. Hiroshima was uh, a quite a vibrant city at the time. And this area especially was the city center, uh, covered with houses and, and many, many people uh, just about to go to their offices and starting their small businesses. So the quarter past eight was just when people were starting their day's business. And that's why so many people outside uh, and were directly exposed to the heat and blast. A sombre start to the program today. When atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima in 1945, it led a few months later to the surrender of Japan, effectively ending World War II. There were up to 150,000 casualties in the atomic blast, and the magnitude of the devastation has changed how the Japanese view war and how Hiroshima sees itself today. Welcome to Future Tense. I'm Matt Smith, and I'm being shown around the Peace Gardens in Hiroshima by Dr. Luli Vanderdaz, director of the Center for Peace at Hiroshima University. I do hope that the visitors will see Hiroshima and if possible feel the soil, feel the grass and feel the lives that's been passed down generations despite the atrocity that happened here. Because in doing that, we could make the past event, the atomic bombings of humans, as part of us. Mm. Yeah, of course, the mistakes were committed and apologies must be made, but what happened was happened and it cannot be reversed, but we can learn from what happened. And by learning, we can realize that the nuclear weapons are here, which can at any moment devastate any city, any lives. The current threat of nuclear weapons is so real. It could happen in Ukraine tomorrow. Mm. Yeah. We should first realize that it is no longer somebody else's problem. We don't have time to do the brain game anymore. So atomic bomb atrocity makes anyone the victim. Today on the program, we're looking at Japan and the emotional, constitutional and political pressures that will shape its future strategic defence. Constrained by its past, questioning its presence and concerned for its future, the nation finds itself in a unique geopolitical position one of great influence and considerable risk. Japan has the world's oldest unamended constitution, written primarily by the United States during Allied occupation after World War II. And this document has shaped the military it has today. This is Beck Strading, Director of La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University. 
Article 9 is a really important part of Japan's constitution and it is called the Renunciation of War. That's the name of Article 9. You know, it's quite a, a unique clause in that it basically removes from Japan the right to use force uh, in order to resolve international disputes. So uh, if Japan has an argument with another state or it has, you know, a dispute that it can't figure out, its constitution bans it from using force uh, or the threat of war in order to be able to resolve that dispute. But what it doesn't remove is the ability to defend. Absolutely. So this has placed certain constraints on the creation of the Japanese military, the armed forces. So in the field that I operate in or work in, uh, which is maritime security, we don't really talk so much about a Japanese navy, although we might talk about that sort of colloquially. Mm. But we do talk about a Japanese maritime self-defence force. So even with the name, we can see that the emphasis is very much squarely placed on uh, the use of armed forces for self-defence rather than the use of war or the use of force uh, in order to try to secure other sorts of sovereign rights. Yeah, yeah. So in such a contested area that Japan lives in now, where defending their territory is such a priority, how has the concept of defence shaped what they can do in their region in the realms of defence? Yeah, I think one of the most important things that has happened, you know, over the past 10, 20 years is the rise of China. And of course, Japan is in a particular situation. It has territorial disputes with China over the the Senkaku Diego Islands. It also has clashing maritime claims. And China is emerging as, you know, the next sort of big power in Asia. And and it's one that Japan has has to live beside. At the same time, it still has this constraint in its constitution that means that its military doesn't necessarily operate in the same ways that perhaps other militaries do. Mm. You know, we have this real focus on self-defence rather than the use of force to settle international disputes. So that's outlawed. Other states, you know, might not have a constitutional restriction. That means that they have the potential to use force in order to try to resolve international disputes in their favour. Japan, under its constitution, does not have that option. But that doesn't mean that it is not trying to build up its capabilities in defence. So recently, the end of 2022, There was an announcement made the Japanese government intends to increase the defence budget. At the moment, it's quite low at 1% of GDP. If we compare this, you know, Australia spends around 2% of its GDP at the moment on defence. But in Japan, it's still 1%, which is about the same as New Zealand, actually. But this plan is to increase that to 2% of GDP over the next five years. So, you know, quite a significant increase. And that I think we can explain due to, you know, real concerns about what rising China means to the territorial integrity of Japan. Mm. So this constraint of defence, though, how do you think that is going to guide Japan in the future and influence what it can do? Is Japan perceived, does Japan perceive itself as 
more of a peacekeeping voice in the global community? Well, Japan has had a role to play in peacekeeping missions, even though it's constitutionally restrained in the use of force to settle disputes, it can contribute, it has contributed to peacekeeping missions. It also plays a really important role uh, in Southeast Asia in terms of building up law enforcement capabilities in the maritime space. So the Japanese Coast Guard, for example, plays an important role in building up the sovereign capabilities of other states in the region so that they can defend their own security interests uh, within the maritime domain. So there are ways in which Japan contributes to regional security and regional stability. Uh, There are ways in which Japan definitely tries to secure its own territory and population. But there are still, I think, these debates that go on within Japanese politics about what Article 9 means, how it's interpreted, uh, and whether or not it's fit for purpose when we're talking about an international security environment uh, where the balance of power is shifting dramatically. So let's unpack that and look at regional stability and Japan's relationship with China. Their neighbour to the north has long been a concern, to the extent that Japan is a firm member of the Quad Alliance, along with the United States, India and Australia, which aims to counter its influence. Here's Professor Chisaka Masao, an expert in Japan-China relations from Kyushu University. Over the last decade or so, you know, uh, Japan had been bothered by uh, China's uh, new actions surrounding the Senkaku Islands. Mm. It is reported at that time it was Xi Jinping himself who decided to uh, shot uh, those missiles into Japan's claiming EZ to convey a message to Japan, uh, you should not intervene in uh, the Taiwanese affairs, which China regards to be a part of the country. Uh, however, you know, in Japan, it was interpreted in a very different way. I think what's happening in uh, this part of the world is basically the security dilemma. Mm. So China takes those new actions uh, in order to protect their sovereignty and uh, their claiming rights. However, uh, in many cases, they take those actions in a very, very uh, uh, excessive ways mm. because uh, they believe their you know, interests should be <laughs> fully protected. And uh, those actions seen from the from the Japanese side are understood in a very different way. We tend to regard China as a new type of threat that utilizes many different measures to extend their interest to new domains. So we tend to regard China as basically re establishing the international order uh, in the interest uh, Mm. of their own. And we want to protect ourselves from their new measures. So it's a security dilemma that is actually taking place in this part of the world, I believe. But, you know, uh, because they both believe that they have full rights to do it, uh, it's very um, difficult to make a compromise between those uh, two different ideas. So can you tell me then about Japan's international alliances? Because I I take it that's a very important element in Japan's strategy and their defences. 
and how they interact and manage themselves in the region. I think uh, the measures taken by Abe administration and uh, current Kishida administrations are also very different. Abe utilized a very complicated strategy. Uh, you know, he tried to combine security measures to align with first the United States, but also with Australia and uh, in some way uh, European and uh, India, you know, by forming the squad too, and uh, try to make China understand, even if you try to pursue your uh, national interests uh, in your own unique way, uh, it's not going to happen because uh, we are forming some sort of loose uh, cooperation uh, with the international society. Mm, and mm. at the same time, he kept uh, sending, you know, a benign message to Xi Jinping administration to talk more with the Japanese side. However, I think during COVID-19, uh, this type of balance was not maintained. Chinese behaviors uh, seemed to be more aggressive. Japan was able to uh, use this uh, new uh, international environment to pursue their national interests. Yes, and I think yeah. Kishida is more uh, inclined toward aligning with the Western world. I understand that going too much uh, because uh, we also need to strengthen our relationship with the developing uh, countries or emerging countries. Mm. And uh, somehow Kishida hasn't really highlighted this aspect. So can we talk then about Taiwan, which is very much a topic of concern, I think, mm -hmm. in the region and uh, when it comes to China's actions and what they're doing. I'm interested in what they see Japan's role as possibly being in this. So what risk does it hold for Japan and regional stability? At this moment, uh, of course, we do not know if the mainland China takes those actions to take over Taiwan. But Obviously, it is preparing the capability for it. Mm. The government is working very hard to prepare for this. However, because of our constitutional uh, limit and also uh, because of our uh, capability, I don't think uh, Japan can really intervene to this affair if that happens okay. uh, militarily. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. what Japan can do is basically the logistic support mm -hmm. for the American military. Yeah. Because uh, since uh, there are more and more people, uh, including politicians in Japan, are concerned about this, there are more uh, conservative politicians who are arguing that we really have to do something for Taiwan if this happens. So recently there were evacuation drills of the Okinawa mm -hmm. prefecture, an evacuation of around 100,000 residents from remote islands that are actually quite close to Taiwan. And those people were ultimately relocated to Kyushu. So what did that activity look like on this end of the operation? And, and what do you think about needing to be that prepared? Because if Taiwan becomes an area of conflict, then these populations, these islands, which is part of Japan, can directly be threatened as well. That's right. So uh, it's a very interesting question. Right now, the government is talking about how to make residents in those uh, southwestern islands evacuate to the mainland uh, Japan. 
Of course, this type of evacuation itself has been operated when uh, there is any uh, natural disasters yeah, in okay. Japan. So yeah. in those cases, usually the SDF and uh, fire fighting team are usually mobilized. They have accumulated many good examples already. So for the lot smaller scale uh, evacuation activities, we have some experiences. Mm. But, you know, population size... With this, uh, we have no experiences. Yeah. At this moment, uh, you know, on the surface, uh, people are talking about how to make those people evacuate to Kyushu. But there is another, uh, you know, concern. How can we make Japanese and foreign residents in Taiwan to evacuate to Japan? So uh, I think on uh, this drill oh, also, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, reflects our concern for this. Mm. Yeah. But you know, if we are really going to, you know, make those residents evacuate to Japan, we have to think about, you know, how to mobilize uh, civilian vessels. If this is going to happen, uh, it'll be a very unstable situation. And can we make those civilian vessels, you know, operate in such a situation? So it's not a simple question, and we still don't know the answer. We just started to think about But the fact that uh, it is being thought about and prepared, and and these drills are going on now, not right now, but, you know, the... the, Uh, You're listening to Future Tense, and now it's time to take a trip on the train. Thank you for joining me, Alessio. Delighted to join you, Matt, on this wonderful day on a train heading towards Tokyo. Do you know exactly where we are at the moment? Um, I think we are in the outskirts of Nagoya, which is a very important and relevant point of discussion. Because Nagoya... Much about how Japan operates with its military, its alliances and its conduct in the region comes down to the important concept of defence and how it interprets Article 9. So while I was on the Shinkansen, Japan's high-speed bullet train, I had a chat to Professor Alessio Patalano of War Studies at the King's College London to find out more. In a maritime domain, offence and defence are a harder to define, yeah. and also the balance between the two is very contextual. In Japan, until 1972 really, there was no clear definition of what an offensive capability or combat system is outside the context of nuclear weapons and nuclear armed capabilities. Yeah. This became really something that developed and changed over time to a point that the Ministry of Defence in the early 2000s had a very limited definition of the exact capabilities that would be considered beyond the realm of a purely defensive defense posture. So for example, American super aircraft carriers, those were considered outside the scope. But short of that, Everything else is contextual. Yeah. And you see now when the whole debate in Japan, even to the present, um, with the last national defense strategy approved in last December and the capability packages related to it, uh, there's a question like, you know, have the Japanese gone beyond the boundaries of Article 9? The answer is like, not necessarily, because if you have the right to self-defense, which is what Article 9 in many ways defines, then 
your self-defense is relative to the capabilities of others to bring harm to you. I realize that, but you know, I can see a, a position within the naval forces, within the armed forces and, and the general military for not just, you know, legal advisors, but also philosophical advisors if you're going to get to this level of how to interpret Article 9. Right. That is where the real change has occurred in Japan since sort of Abe Mark II. Abe came back in power in yeah, 2012 yeah, yeah. because in Japan, it exists a very clear division or separation, right? There is civilian control over the military. And over the last three decades, some measure of transformation had started by which the military had points of political advisory roles that they could have yeah, at yeah. the national level. It was the government that at the end of the day would decide and the arguments would be played out on the diet, not so much the Ministry of Defence. The Ministry of Defence would act upon very constrained guidelines, as it were. That really has changed in the last 10 years because okay, with yeah. the establishment of the National Security Secretary Arts and the development of the National Security Strategy approach, what you have, you have the Japanese MOD being fully integrated together with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of um, Trade, as it were, inside the very top of the political machinery. And they all work together to advise and shape how to connect the different tools of statecraft at Japan's disposal precisely to achieve that balance. So military power has been reintegrated progressively in a very institutionalized fashion within the toolbox of national statecraft. You've got a dimension there of, of I think, diplomacy as well. There's only so many things that they can ask of Japan if Japan wants to exist as a country that only works within the realms of defence. Mm -hmm. Is it something that constrains how much they can do within an alliance and how much Japan's international partners can expect from Japan? Mm. It pushed the Japanese to try to find a niche for themselves when it comes to cooperative forms of endeavour and capacity of outreach to countries that are sitting on the fence and they want to find themselves in a position to be pushed to have and make a decision, but they are open to greater cooperation. Japan really has an enormous amount of potential there. Yeah. And as whether it comes to Vietnam, the Philippines, Indonesia, other parts of Southeast Asia or indeed the South Pacific, Japan has been extremely successful. And that has been of great value to the United States and generally speaking to regional stability. The second point to make, where do we set the bar of expectation? And I think in the past you could make a fair argument that the Japanese would use the constitution to shield themselves. The story of the US-Japan alliance is very much a, a story of pull and push in many respects. But at the same time, you know, it cuts both ways, right? If you say, well, I'm not necessarily sure because the constitution said that, but I'm not sure that it does allow me to do so. But do you think you should be doing this in the same thought? It's exactly right. When in the last 10 years you see a process in which the Japanese political elites turn this way of thinking over its head, the Japan that used to punch below its weight is actually now much more inclined to explore ways to punch above its weight. But with that experience that because they've been doing very cautious over a number of decades, they'll know how far to push and, and where to go if, if they can at all. My final question I guess then for you is is there a public perception problem then with the people of Japan who are attached to the concept of peace, very proud of the concept of peace, but at the same time how this defence, how this deterrence is 
interpreted is gradually, incrementally moving the goalposts to what could be something else in the future? That's an excellent question. And I think the way to answer it is by breaking it down in, in two components. You've got public perception as enablers for national policy, mm-hmm. right? Because we make a choice and then... then this then, is a democracy. Exactly. Yes. So, so if people don't like it, they vote you out of job. So, mm. so there is that. And I think in that sense, actually, things have moved along quite a bit. I mean, the surveys conducted in Japan about the importance of security and threat perception have changed significantly. The Japanese now are much more comfortable to say, we live in a really tough neighborhood and yes, we and need this, defense. This you is know, the reality. This is the reality. Yeah. So, so, so that doesn't mean that they're not longer attached about, you know, the, the proud of the peace dimension or what they stand for. I yeah. mean, as a matter of fact, that's always been the case. But I think there is um, a disconnect, especially the English language and Western literature on Japanese pacifism and what actually that means in reality. Now that the perception of that relativity of the security space has changed, the threshold of tolerance for what you need to do to maintain the peace has changed as well. It's remarkable how much support you'd have at the national level for policy action as a general proposition. From my perspective, the three things to keep an eye on are going to be the capabilities piece, and how they work with partners on capabilities. Yes. And that means not just the United States, GCAP, the global combat air program with the UK and Italy. Yeah, it's yeah. gonna be really interesting to see how it gets on track and, and gets off the ground, because that really will give an indication of the maturity of Japan. AUKUS Pillar 2 projects becomes really another space of great interest, because the Japanese have been working towards enhancing relationship with Australia, with the United States, with the UK, and AUKUS Pillar 2 is the open architecture element to the AUKUS project in the sense that specific elements of specific capabilities actually are not just for the three countries themselves. As part of that sense of maturity, it's going to be interesting to see how the Japanese relate to that. And the third thing, the leadership that Japan has proved to possess in maintaining the conversation of uh, regional stability through minilaterals, the trilaterals that we talked about, or the Quad, as well as improving the relationship with South Korea, as well as relationship with ASEAN. If the next White House administration changes its approach in foreign policy, it's going to be really interesting to see how the Japanese will play the role that they did under the Trump administration years where together with a selected few, including Australia, really stepped into the realm of keeping things on balance as the United States was wavering a bit. That was Alessio Padalano. Perhaps the best way to end this program is with a word of peace. In recent weeks, Japan has hosted a G7 meeting with leaders of the world converging for talks in Hiroshima. The location was hardly by accident. Prime Minister Kishida's family is from Hiroshima and he was keen to emphasise what can go wrong if war is an option. You spoke earlier of of mistakes. Mistakes are still happening and war is still happening in the world. And there are countries that are experimenting or stockpiling nuclear weapons. Is this message of peace and what Hiroshima tries to stand for now as a warning to the rest of the world, an example of what can happen and the cost not just to the lives of those that died but those who survived as well. Media of peace for those people who survived the bomb 
is quite different from the kind of peace that is advertised. City of Peace Hiroshima as a constructed concept was constructed. It was needed to reconstruct this land. Okay? So under the Allies' occupation, it was important for them to create a new image, new purpose. Hiroshima lost everything. It was bombed because it was militarized city. Okay? And now that allies are here to demilitarize and democratize the land of Japan, why can't Hiroshima be the first? So by naming it as a city of peace, it's a memorial place. But it's not memory of the dead only. Dead are still with them in their heart, encouraging them not to make the same mistakes. But I think, and nowadays most uh, survivors think that mistakes can be of any human being. Yeah. Promising to the dead as well as to the future generations that we will do our best to pass down the memories of Hiroshima and Nagasaki as well. Yeah. Okay? yeah. So that nuclear weapons will never be used against any lives. Professor Lily Vander does from Hiroshima University. This has been Future Tense, and my thanks to Anthony Fennell and Karen Zavanovitz for letting me bring you this week's story. I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.